Hi, this is George Collias. Welcome to the GI Collias podcast, where we talk about art, philosophy, literature, and all things classical Greek. In today's episode, we will be talking about Euripides' tragedy, Helen. So, our topic today is Euripides' tragedy, Helen. And right at the very beginning of the play, in the prologue, Helen appears alone on the stage to explain how it was all one big misunderstanding. She never went to Troy. What happened was that Paris, the youngest son of King Priam of Troy, was asked to judge a beauty contest between the three goddesses, Athena, Hera and Aphrodite. He gave top prize to Aphrodite, who had promised to give him the most beautiful women on earth, that is Helen herself, in return. Hera, to vex Aphrodite and her favourite Paris, replaced Helen by an idolon, a phantom made of air. Apparently no one could tell the difference because both the Greeks and the Trojans went ahead and fought a war on Helen anyway. You see, the war also suited Zeus' plans, who wished to rid the earth of a surplus of humans and also to give glory to the hero Achilles. Helen, in the meantime, was transported by the god Hermes to Egypt, the kingdom of Proteus. While the old king Proteus was alive, she was safe in her exile. However, he has now died, and his son, Theoclymenos, presses Helen to marry him. She wants to avoid the marriage and remain loyal to her husband Menelaus, the second in command of the Greek army. Hermes has assured her that one day Menelaus will be back to take her back home. This is in fact the only reason why Helen carries on and refrains from killing herself. She has now sought asylum as a suppliant on Proteus' grave outside the palace in order to escape Theoclymenos' advances. Tefkros, Teusa, one of the Greek fighters in the Trojan War, then appears. He has come to consult Proteus' daughter, the sister of the current king, Theonoi, who is a world-famous seer. He is shocked when he sees Helen. He would kill her, but he is convinced that it is simply a case of mistaken identity. You see, he has seen with his own eyes Helen, the phantom as it turns out, board Menelo's ship after the fall of Troy. So he considers the woman standing before him on stage to be a stranger with a striking resemblance to Helen. Surprisingly, this is the first time Helen hears from Tefkros about the fall of Troy, although it is an event that has happened seven years ago. Tefkros also confirms for her how universally hated Helen is thought to be the cause of the war and the unlimited deaths and suffering it brought about. He tells Helen that her mother Lida killed herself out of shame for her daughter, the same possibly for her brothers, although here, Tefkos admits, there are various stories circulating about them. He also confirms that Menelaus is widely believed to have drowned on the way back home from Troy. Tefkos leaves and despondent Helen is convinced by the chorus of Greek women to enter the palace to ask the seer Theonoi if the reports of her husband's death 
are indeed true. This conveniently leaves the stage empty and a ship at Menelaus appears, dressed in rags. He knocks on the palace door and in a scene straight out of an Aristophanic comedy, an old woman doorkeeper tends him, the victorious general of the glorious Achaean army, away. She tells him that her master, the king, hates Greeks and kills them, and that Helen of Troy, the daughter of Zeus, has been living in the palace for years. The dejected Menelaus, who thought he had brought Helen and the ship from Troy with him, cannot believe what he has just heard. He is beginning to wonder if the names Helen, Zeus and Sparta are more common than he previously thought. Helen and the women of the chorus then appear, having received the news from the seer that Menelaus is still alive. Husband and wife set eyes on each other after 17 years, 10 years for the war and another 7 years that Menelaus has been wandering. Helen, after she overcomes the surprise of her husband's humble appearance, is delighted to see him. Menelaus, though, remains unconvinced. Obviously, this woman looks just like his wife, but he knows that the real wife is back, hiding in a cave with the rest of his crew. It is then that one of his sailors appear to report the incredible news that the phantom Helen has flown away, after first revealing that it was she, a mirage, who went to Troy, and that the real Helen is innocent. Menelaus is convinced. Menelaus and Helen embrace each other. They have lots of catching up to do. Helen reassures him that she has remained loyal to him all this time. However, she is now the target of a bloodthirsty barbarian king who wants to make her his wife. She swears that she would rather die with Menelaus than go ahead with the marriage. So the reunited couple agree to try to escape. But failing that, they agree to enter into a double suicide pact. The first obstacle to be overcome is Theoclymenos' sister Theonoi, the omniscient seer. If she tells on them to her brother, the game is up. She appears and explains to Menelaus and Helen that on this very day, the gods have a meeting to decide on their case. Hera wants them saved so that the whole world can find out the trick she played. Aphrodite wants them destroyed for the exact opposite reason. So it is now up to Theonoi to decide which side to take and therefore decide the fate of the two suppliants. As if in a courtroom, husband and wife present their case. Helen stresses the dictates of justice. She was left by the gods to protest Theonoi's father for safekeeping and would be totally unjust to betray this trust and force her into a wedding she does not desire. Furthermore, if Theonoi helps them escape, then Helen's reputation, which has been solid for almost two decades, will be restored. Menelaus addresses his plea to the tomb of Proteus, the dead king, and Hades, the god of the underworld, as well as Theonoi. Along with the justice arguments, he also stresses that he is prepared to use violence to save his, himself and his wife and fight it out till the very end. Theonoi decides to help them and keep their secret.
It is now remains for the pair to figure out a way of escape, and it is Helen who comes up with a plan. She goes inside the palace and puts on mourning clothes. When the king appears, they tell him that Menelaus is dead. This Greek stranger here was the only survivor of his shipwreck, and the rages that Menelaus is wearing make the story all the more believable. Helen will now agree to the wedding with Theoclymenos, but first they have to attend to the requisite burial rites for the dead husband. Theoclymenos, palpably excited at the prospect of finally getting Helen after years of waiting, and completely ignorant of Greek customs, believes the bogus story about how they must take a ship, go to the middle of the sea, and perform a sacrifice there. He furnishes them with a brand new, seaworthy, fast vessel, with weapons and with all the necessary accoutrement for the sacrifice, as requested by Menelaus. Menelaus, as the messenger tells the story to the king Theoclymenos later on, managed to get his crew on board the ship at the last minute, disguised as yet another group of shipwrecks. And when they were at a considerable distance from the shore, after sacrificing a bull, the Greeks slaughtered all the sailors of the king and effected their escape. Theoclymenus now wants to vent his anger on his sister for deceiving him and makes a move to find her and kill her. But he's stopped by a slave who points out the prudence and the justice of Theonoi's actions. While king and slave are struggling, the two brothers of Helen, the Dioscuri, intervene as the gods and the machine. It turns out that they have become stars and gods, and this was one of the rumours Tefkos reported about them to Helen. They explain that everything has happened according to the gods' will. Helen and Menelaus will now return to Sparta. When they die, Helen will become a goddess herself, while Menelaus will be transported to the islands of the blessed. Theoclymenos agrees to obey the gods' commands. He will not hurt his sister. He even has some words of praise to say about Helen's character and good sense. And here the play ends. Helen was produced in 412 BC, about four years before Euripides left Athens for the court of Macedonia, where he spent the last couple of years of his life. Like many of Euripides' late plays, modern critics don't know quite how they're supposed to interpret it. On one level, this is a very amusing and light-hearted comedy. It would be very difficult to argue that there is any point in the play where we feel true pity or fear for Helen. From the very beginning, she has assured us that the gods have foretold her safe return home. Unlike other suppliers in tragedy, she doesn't seem to be in any real danger. First, she leaves her post and pops inside the palace to ask Theonoi for an oracle. And then, she leaves again to visit her bedroom to change into mourning clothes. This is not how an asylum is supposed to work. As it has been pointed out, Helen treats a place of supplication as a picnic spot. The tone for Manelos is set by his first scene, when he appears dressed in rags and is scolded by the old woman and refuses entry to the palace. He's a Homeric hero 
who finds himself in very unheroic conditions and does not know how to cope. Theoclymenos is described by Helen as a bloodthirsty barbarian who hates Greeks, but in his scenes with Menelaus and Helen, he's a very gullible and a very accommodating foe. As soon as he appears, he says, I have been playing myself as an utter fool. We don't use the death penalty nearly enough on criminals. But these are the words of a cartoon villain rather than a true persecutor in tragedy. Of course, in the end of the play, his threat to kill his sister sounds credible enough. Which brings us to Theonoi, who is the one character in the play who appears to face a true tragic dilemma. In fact, her situation is not that dissimilar to Sophocles' heroine Antigone. She has to choose between obeying the laws of the land versus what her conscience and her sense of justice demand. Unlike Antigone, she chooses the latter, and she almost pays for it with her life. Thornoy is also an interesting figure because he represents an alternative approach to traditional religion. Gods at the Olympic level in this play act like a group of petulant children with no admirable qualities. The prima donna goddesses, Hera and Aphrodite, fight over who will win the favour of a shepherd. Zeus takes advantage of the argument to start a ten-year war in order to secure glory for Achilles and to relieve Mother Earth from the vast burden of mortals. It's interesting to note that many in the environmental movement today believe that a sharp decrease in the number of human inhabitants is the inevitable solution to the current ecological crisis. So, it is refreshing to hear Thernoy justify her decision to help the royal Spartan couple not on petty personal considerations, but by reference to higher ethical standards and the existence of a temple of justice inside her. Later on in the same passage, she says that the dead, as well as the living, are punished for injustice, and that the mind of the dead has internal thought as it falls into eternal ether. Now, the meaning of these lines is not clear, but they can be read as an indication of Euripides' knowledge and Euripides' involvement with the most up-to-date philosophical currents of his day. Of course, Euripides was primarily an artist rather than a philosopher, so a bit further down, the chorus of the play expresses this climate of theological uncertainty and speculation by asking the question, what is God, or what is not God, or what is in between? In fact, the Helen has been called one of the most philosophical of Greek tragedies, as the whole plot revolves around the distinction between appearance and reality, and the thing and its name, distinctions that we know were at the top of the agenda for philosophical speculation for 5th century thinkers, both natural philosophers and sophists. In this play there's a real Helen and a phantom Helen, just as a bit later on there's the real Menelaus reporting on the death of Menelaus. Helen keeps stressing that while her body has remained pure, she hasn't succumbed either to Paris or to her Egyptian suitor, her name is disgraced throughout Greece and she's extremely keen 
to restore her reputation. Similarly, Menelaus, as a true Homeric hero, is extremely sensitive about his Cleos, his reputation, his fate, what people say about him. And this may be the most profound message to be taken from this superficially light play, namely that the true cost of war is not borne either by the heroes who play the leading parts, nor by the gods who provoke them, but by the common people, the participants who fight and get killed. The cause of the Trojan War was that Aphrodite wanted to give Helen as a bribe to Paris for casting his vote for her in the Miss Olympus beauty pageant. Zeus went along with it because he wanted to glorify Achilles. At the end of the play, Helen is presumably very happy because she will return back to Sparta with her reputation intact and her daughter Hermione will now be able to find a suitable match for marriage. For her, the negative effects of the war have been completely reversed. It is as if it never happened. Menelaus returns with his wife as Geras, a gift of honour, a prize, and with eternal reputation as the man who conquered Troy. And it is very interesting to note that time and again in the play he refers to himself as the leader of the army and neglects to mention his brother Agamemnon. If asked, Menelaus would probably admit that the war was the best thing that ever happened to him. Heroes need wars. Heroes need the sort of environment where they can display their martial virtues. By the way, it is amazing that Menelaus spent seven years travelling with Phantom Helen and was unable to tell the difference. After the truth is revealed about her identity in the recognition scene, he's more than happy to immediately transfer his affection to the real Helen. It seems it doesn't matter which Helen he ends up with as long as he does not return home empty-handed. It falls to the messenger, Menelaus' aged companion, to explain, to exclaim during the same scene, so we laboured in vain for a cloud, just like Tefkros in the beginning of the play had admitted that the Greeks had been destroyed just as much as the Trojans as a result of the war. In fact, it would be all too easy to get carried away by the happy-go-lucky atmosphere of the play and overlook the fact that as part of Helena Menelaus' so-called happy ending, about 50 local sailors are slaughtered by the Greeks. Maybe, you would say, they do not count because they are barbarians. However, notice the closing lines of the Dioscuri speech, where they reassure Menelaus that he will be taken care of after his death. They say, the gods never hate the well-born, the sufferings belong more to the numberless. So the implication may be that the dead sailors in the end do not count not because they are Egyptian or Phoenician, but because they belong to the numberless, the multitude, the masses, rather than the well-born. And in the Athens of 412, shortly after the unprecedented catastrophe of the Sicilian expedition, with the flower of the Athenian army perishing as prisoners of war in the quarries of Syracuse, this message may have sounded particularly apt. And finally, after reading or watching the Helen, it is worth revisiting George Seferi's poem of the same name. 
Sefer's poem has none of the superficial lightness and frivolity of the tragedy. This would be out of character for him. It focuses instead on the futility of war. It is written from the perspective of Thefkros, or the old messenger, rather than on one of the heroic protagonists. The whole poem is interspersed with the lines from the play, translated beautifully by Sefer's himself, and the integration of lines from his poet's predecessors is a technique that Seferis uses frequently in his work. It is worth quoting the ending of the poem in whole. If it is true that in future years some other Teucer or some Ajax or Priam or Hecuba or someone unknown and nameless who nevertheless saw a scamander overflowing with corpses is fated to hear messengers coming to tell him that so much suffering, so much life, went into the abyss, all for an empty tunic, all for a Helen. And this concludes today's episode of the G.I. Colliers podcast on Euripides' tragedy, Helen. I'm George Colliers. I would like to thank you very much for listening, and I hope to speak to you again soon. Goodbye.